This is the Namine Solar Light Company podcast, Solutions for Climate Revolution. My name is Francesca and my guest today is Jerry Stokes. Jerry has spent the last 30 years immersed in high-ranking positions in prestigious companies, bringing new solar and battery storage technologies to market. Working your way through sales, marketing, strategy and business development roles, you have been in the thick of it as the photovoltaic and rechargeable battery markets have been evolving and growing and have played a significant role in creating the flourishing environment the industry sees today. You have been quoted by colleagues as a proven giant in the renewable energy and storage industry with a wealth of experience and knowledge. Jerry, you have been an executive committee member of the British Photovoltaic Association and director of the European Photovoltaic Industry Association, and you also have experience working in the American, Japanese and Chinese markets. Starting some roles in startups as a first employee and joining more mature teams with established networks and customer base, you have gone from strength to strength and taken the storage and renewable markets with you. Your current role is executive chairman at GridServe, where your mission is to transform the global energy landscape from developing, implementing and operating sustainable energy infrastructure that serves critical power and transportation applications solar farm and storage and solar powered forecourts for electric vehicle recharging to deliver dependable, low cost, clean energy for everyone. After all this, I have to wonder, Jerry, are you yourself solar powered running with a hidden battery pack? <laughs> We're all solar powered. We need the sun for everything we do. So absolutely, 100 percent. I love what you say there because it is we do. We depend upon the sun for everything, don't we? It's not just the food that we eat, it's, it's everything, it makes the world go round, the ocean move, the oceans move, the winds, everything, it's, it's completely and utterly, yeah, the centre of, the centre of everything for us, I guess. May I ask, what inspired you to get into the PV and storage industry? How did you begin your journey? Well, it was quite a long time ago, and I guess I didn't, I didn't really sort of intend to go into the solar and storage industry, I joined a solar company um, many, many years ago, um, before mobile phones, before laptop computers, uh, and it was a solar company. And at that time, solar powered garden lights were just starting. And it was really about how you could use the very nascent solar uh, industries products at that time to create solutions which hooked a solar panel up together with a battery to provide power where you wouldn't normally have it. Uh, and so I guess back in, in, in those days, there wasn't really the same narrative around climate change, wasn't really a, the same a narrative around renewable energy per se. It was just that this was the only solution that was economic for providing power in places where there was no grid. So I guess I kind of stumbled into it and that then gave me the opportunity to meet a lot of different people from different applications looking at the third and third world and frontier markets where batteries and solar were essential for things like blood plasma fridges for lighting for, for healthcare, um, and also for water pumping for irrigation and as my my sort of horizon broadened to the fact that actually this was not just uh, an alternative to to plugging something in and flicking a switch but actually it was absolutely essential for people in in those markets in those applications that's kind of when it really started to dawn on me that there was something more to this and, and i guess that's been with me ever since 
It's incredible. So your journey, you've gone from kind of being inspired by off-grid applications with water pumps, purification and water for irrigation and sustainable applications in agriculture to now supporting the grid. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of the point is that if you're if you're off grid. So, for example, one of the early uh, solutions that I worked on was with um, some of the water companies in Wales and they had they had water flowing down the, the hills and the mountains there going into reservoirs and they wanted to know how much water was flowing into those reservoirs because that would determine how much water was stored there and then how much energy they could generate from, from turbines and also whether they needed to control the water, water flow further downstream. Now, if they had put a, some flow monitors out in the, in the hills or the mountains with a battery, then of course batteries get used up and they go flat so maybe after three months the battery would be flat so somebody would have to drive in their land rover over rugged landscape then walk with the battery pack just to replace the battery and then go back again and do it you know every three months or every six weeks or, or whatever whereas putting a fairly small solar panel together with a slightly different battery meant that it was completely autonomous and so it, it just meant that the, the cost of the solar panel was not really the critical point. Um, the same with some of the guys I'm working with now at GridServe. You know, they, um, they've been involved for 30 or 40 years in this industry. And, and for example, providing cathodic protection to oil pipelines in the Middle East. It just, to have a diesel generator working hundreds of miles away from any civilization, providing a small little current to an oil pipeline to stop it corroding, just wasn't sensible it was just uneconomic and so it, it's gone from being let's say uh, very specific niche applications as those applications have started to multiply the cost has come down and now yes why haven't we got it on every house in the UK absolutely that's one of my one of the biggest questions I've had for well for feels like my whole entire life now but no it's it's very important that that we start to move towards having PV on our roofs in, in fields to to generate power for, for people who maybe can't have it on their roof. But it's it's this application, I think, of solar that I believe it to be such a backbone of, of the renewable energy and storage sector because it has this ability to just be put anywhere and and power anything. May I ask, how have you how have you sort of seen the solar and storage industry evolve over the years? What's what's been your biggest your sort of your biggest lessons and your your take homes in in your career well well um firstly it's undoubtedly true that it's been as a result of government support that's really helped markets to grow and the i think the role of government as a to act as a catalyst to encourage people to uptake solar and then now storage as well has been really critical but my observation is that there are a lot of companies who just jump on the bandwagon of government support mechanisms and uh, they have the then they're not necessarily there for the long term they're there to just capitalize on that moment and naturally that's not really the intention of government the government wants to create long-term sustainable business as i say acting as a catalyst through legislation or other support mechanisms so 
I've always believed that you know it's it's one thing to have a, a relationship with a customer today but you really if you think about enduring and long-term relationships then those are customers who come back or refer you to other people and so there have been kind of booms in the solar industry particularly in the UK and elsewhere in continental Europe and my view is that's really quite unhelpful we want a steady continuous growth rather than a kind of a big peak then government mechanisms and supports change and then the the demand goes right down it's very difficult to build long-term business like that so i've always sought to work with people who have a similar long-term view uh, and i've been really honored to to meet some fantastic people along the way who who share that kind of vision and people who i've been doing business with for 20 or 30 years and we're still doing business together so yeah i think it's about choosing the partners, people who've got the same kind of outlook, uh, because you know, the sun's not going out anytime soon. So the opportunity for our products, the opportunity to make a difference, the opportunity to, to move the needle in terms of the impact of climate change, I think is, is fantastic, but uh, it's not something that is necessarily a kind of a get rich quick in today and make loads of money and then disappear. I think that's, that's such an important point to make to be in the solar game for the long run because it's it, i think it's short-term thinking that does the damage and when you were talking about the um the mechanism were you talking the increased sort of growth was that the feed-in tariff that we've now seen that's taken been taken away yeah that's right i mean the feed-in tariff was brilliant for raising awareness of people towards solar and when i started all those years ago in, in the solar industry i, I kind of took the view that if on most people's journey to work, they, they never saw a solar panel. And the only time they ever saw solar was on their solar power calculator. It would be very difficult to get their mind around the idea that something that powers something that's on their desktop is gonna be something that could power their houses, something that could power towns and cities. What the government initiative did with the feed-in tariff was it's, it, it encouraged people to put solar onto the roof of their houses. It encouraged the development of some solar farms. And so suddenly people on their journey to work would start to see one, two, five, ten solar installations. And so that perception starts to drive reality. However, the notion that you just put solar on the roof, export all the energy to the grid, the utility, the network operator has to just accept it when it comes and you get paid three or four times the price of the energy that you buy back from the grid. You know, the notion that that was going to be a long-term support is, is you know, folly. And so it was a catalyst. It started the, the scaling up of the industry. But I think too many people, too many companies just assumed that it would continue forever. Uh, and, you know, that's not, in my opinion, the role of government, uh, and it's not economically sensible. And so there was a little bit of a, of a kind of a pushback against the fact that uh, on the face of it, it appeared that renewables were getting an unfair support relative to, to the incumbent energy generation, which, to my knowledge, when you look below the surface, you find there's actually an awful lot of government support for, for some of the carbon, highest carbon intensity energy generation in the country. So, but that's just how it was. It's, I love that you put a positive spin on the feed-in tariff being a catalyst because I think when I f first started hearing about it in the news I was outraged I was just like how can the government do this this is absolutely ridiculous we need more solar than ever but I think actually using it as very rightly I think you said as a catalyst to encourage other businesses and industries to start getting in involved in 
in renewables and in solar has has definitely stimulated the market and i think now people have this this idea that well i hope people that is more of a, a widespread idea that you don't solar can run in the uk and actually very efficiently yeah absolutely absolutely and I, at, at gridserve we we built a, a 35 megawatts peak solar farm on a 198 acres of very low grade agricultural land up in York, so fairly north, you know. Um, and uh, that's on, those are using the latest technology of solar modules, so they're bifacial solar modules. So not only do they have the sun coming on the front surface, but reflected light from the land underneath also generates power. So that's the first time that those have been used on really true grid scale projects in the UK. The second thing is they were mounted on single axis trackers, so they face the sun in the morning in the east, and they then rotate around to the west, so they follow the sun. So that helps to also increase the amount of energy that they generate through the day, and because they're getting energy from the front and the backside, it improves the energy yields. And those 91,000 solar modules uh, are connected up to um, 11 40-foot containers of batteries. So if you imagine all of the solar systems in the UK, which are, which are connected to the grid, when the sun is shining across the whole of the UK, as it was so, so fantastically over the last month, not, not so much just recently, but um, all of those solar systems would effectively be generating the maximum amount of energy at the same time. And of course, the grid doesn't necessarily need all that energy at that time. So the opportunity to co-locate a battery with that large scale solar system means that you can then actually decide when you export the energy to the grid and therefore when the grid needs it the most. So solar systems, you know it started with the support of the government mechanism it's the scaling of the industry has managed costs to come down very very dramatically uh, and now we can operate grid scale solar farms subsidy free in the uk which is which is tremendous and there'll be many more of those being built over the coming years it's just fantastic and, and so encouraging and you're, you're a pioneer in the bifacial space in the uk as as well as driving this in this the need for for solar coming through tell me there's practical solutions that we can use in in the renewable space with with solar and there's always evolution coming in renewables such as bifacial it's it's very recent what other kind of practical solutions can can young people and anyone sort of take on board to to live a more sustainable lifestyle as well as buying renewable energy sure well i think you know renewable energy in the home is the first thing that i would be a really strong advocate for Absolutely. and not everybody uh, has the desire or the ability to to for example mount solar on the roof of their their houses however there's really no reason why they sw shouldn't switch to um, a renewable energy provider so for example in, in our house we use octopus energy and that's 100 percent renewable energy and they have some very interesting tariffs which also and some of the tariffs enable you to take advantage of the fact that energy prices sometimes go negative um, or to use to think about when you use energy so for example it's pretty well known that you know in the winter in the uk between say 3 30 and 6 30 7 30 in the evening uh, where people are coming home from work from school lights are on heating's on the, en the energy demand on the grid goes right up um, and therefore the cost of generation goes up and so it makes no sense in, in the home to switch your dishwasher on or your washing machine or your iron or your immersion heater. So I think that these are practical steps which some of the companies, the innovative uh, utility companies like um, Octopus, 
they have tariffs which encourage you not to use energy at those very expensive times. So first step I'd say is to, to switch to a renewable energy supplier. Um, the second is to really think about when you use the energy, because like I say, if you don't need to switch your dishwasher on at six o'clock in the evening, why not leave it till two o'clock in the morning when energy prices are a lot lower, there's a lot less demand on the grid, and you'll still wake up to clean, to, to clean um, dishes in the, in the morning. So thinking about when you use the energy uh, is, is, a, is a key part. Clearly energy efficiency is, is also very significant and just unplugging things that are, that are plugged in. You know, when you, when you feel a plug and it's warm, that's because there's electricity being wasted um, and there's a resistance inside which is heating all of those Apple um, iPhone chargers and other mobile phone chargers that are left plugged in all the time if you feel them and they're warm and they haven't been plugged into to your phone, then it shows that they're using energy. The modern ones typically use next to no energy when there's nothing plugged into them, but it's just a good practice to switch things off around the house because if enough people do it, then actually we can reduce the overall amount of energy that we need in the grid. So I think energy at home, I would say, you know, in, in answer to your question, what are the practical things we can do? So energy in the home is, is key. I would say the second thing is to think about electric cars and whilst historically people have found it you know fairly easy to to talk their way out of why they need an electric car because they say it's too expensive, they say it doesn't have enough range and you know they need to go to to Scotland, they only go to Scotland once a year but they still think that their their electric car needs to be able to do that trip whereas in reality the the purchase cost of an electric car may be a bit higher than a standard petrol or diesel car, but in terms of the operation of that vehicle, you know, the running costs, it's significantly cheaper. Typically about five pence a mile when you, when you look at the cost of the fuel. Uh, there's no road tax, there's no congestion charge, there's no, none of those sort of additional costs. So, and of course, because electric vehicles have so few moving parts, there's no carburetor, there's no gearbox, there's no radiator, there's hardly any maintenance in electric vehicles. So over a period of two or three years, the, the actual cost differential between an electric car and a petrol diesel car will, will really even itself out. And then there are innovative companies like EVZ that offer an all-in-one subscription service for electric cars super flexible so you don't need to think about buying it why do you want to buy a car specifically um, and so companies like EVZ are really flexible flexible innovative subscription models for electric vehicles they're very cost effective uh, and in in our company GridServe we have around 10 or 12 of those of those um, EVZs I drive one myself um, and super flexible so there's so the barriers for for driving electric vehicles really have come down and, and it's it may have been true a few years ago that there was a big cost differential and it really wasn't um, easy for everybody but all, or only those who are fortunate to be able to switch to electric but the price points of the vehicles from a, you know, a Renault Zoe and Nissan Leaf uh, electric mini you know right the way through to the to the highest performing Teslas and others and Porsches uh, there's a price point for all different types of vehicles and, and very importantly for people who have company cars the benefit in kind tax, the tax you pay from the benefit that you have a of a company car has gone to zero for electric vehicles. And so actually, if you, if you were 
driving a BMW 3 Series, 5 Series, you know, one of those typical business type cars that, that those who were fortunate to have one would, would drive around, you were probably playing, paying several hundred pounds a month of so-called benefiting kind tax for having that vehicle. If you switch to an electric car, for example, like a Tesla Model 3, which is a pretty similar price point to those vehicles, then there's zero. So you're immediately saving that, that cost. So there are lots of sort of practical things you can do there. Um, I'm happy to keep going with, with things, uh, practical suggestions, if you'd like, Francesca. Yes, please go for it. Okay, all right. Well, um, you know, the other things, things we do every day in, around the home. So when you think about kind of washing your hair um, and cleaning, for example, then to use products, there's, there's a company that, that we use called Faith in Nature. And Faith in Nature's products were made in the UK, not tested on animals. So they're vegan, they're all using local produce, they're in recycled plastic containers, you can buy the bulk pack so you don't have to keep buying small um, package, packaging. Um, you know, there are simple things though for, you know, for washing your hair, for conditioner, for body wash and things like that. Uh, getting a British made product of course is good for our economy but it also means that it's not being shipped from all over the world to come to the UK. Um, things like there's a company called BioD, who make um, biodegradable products for washing powders, for washing up liquid, for dishwasher tablets, for, for cleaning generally. Um, you know, these are all biodegradable, they're all natural materials, they're all made in the UK, and they really, you know, switching to those really does make a difference. And then the next kind of key thing I would say is looking at food. Going to the supermarket, you just have a look at where some of the food comes from. And Really, I think you need to ask ourselves, do we absolutely need tomatoes from Egypt? Mm. I, I think not. I think, I think I that um, cutting down the, the food mileage is cutting down the carbon footprint of those products. Much of that food will be air freighted, which clearly is, you know, also doesn't make a lot of sense from a carbon footprint perspective. And we really should get used to eating seasonal food produced in the UK. And whilst I keep promoting you know, buying British products and British produce, that's not to say that there aren't fantastic products made from other, in other parts of the world. It's just that for our staples, do we need South African potatoes? I don't think we do. We've got enough potatoes in the UK. So let's buy local produce, understand the provenance of it. And if you can shop locally when you buy British produce, then of course you're also helping both the local community um, to, to be sustainable as well, because we've all seen the number of shops that have closed in high streets. And if we don't use those shops, you know, do, do we need to use Amazon for everything? I, I really don't think we do. And so I, I believe if we can support our local high street, then by buying local produce, then we are actually making, helping to make a big difference. The provenance of the, of the product obviously is, is much clearer. You know, we've heard about chlorine washed chicken from the States. Um, you know, we, 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 have, we, we hold some of these things in very high regard in the UK and we shouldn't have to compromise on those. And, and whilst sometimes buying local produce may cost a little bit more, it's also frightening the amount of food that we waste. And so again, I would just say by being more careful rather than worrying about buying something 20% 20 lower cost, which is a bulk buy coming from wherever, buying locally 
maybe costs a bit more, but let's just not waste the 20% at the end. It's frightening. And, and waste food, clearly there will be peelings and cuttings and, and things like that. Using those as compost to grow your own food is both tremendously satisfying. Uh, and again, it's, you know, the provenance of the food, you know, there's no fertilizers with it. Um, and so these are kind of super, super simple things that we can do, which don't have to cost a lot of money, but they're steps that we can take today now. And, 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 and if, if more people do that, it starts to make a really measurable difference to consumption and to the benefit of, of our own loca locale. I couldn't agree more. I think we, it's, it's about getting these messages out so we adopt them at mass scale. I think it's, I just want to touch on a few things that you mentioned, like shifting energy demand, I think is, is so important and it, it just resonates so much with what you were saying about shifting our demand towards more sustainable and ethical products as well. So I just, I personally, myself, I use Faith in Nature shampoos and soaps. I also have the BioD washing up liquid, the rinse aid um, and the dishwashing stuff, like couldn't love it more. And it's, it's so important for water quality as well, because we don't want these toxic chemicals running in to, to, to our waterways because it's just I get really scared when you hear about combined sewage overflows when we have heavy rain like we've been having they just empty this untreated sewage all these chemicals that we flush down our drains into rivers and it's Absolutely. just it, it's just it's yeah. just it's, yeah. it's yeah so spreading the awareness about these things I think it, it's just so so important and to go back to EVZ as well having this this service-based economy that I think maybe mm. we're moving more towards and I think actually what do you what do you think about um just wanted to sort of touch on actually the food the food produce as well like I've, I've started only buying british produce i can even i can do it in any shop i go to and it's just like oh mm. any shop i'm just like if it's not from the uk i don't buy it and it make, means that i cut down on my the processed stuff as well which often costs so much more and has all these horrible other side effects e-numbers chemicals and awful yep. sort of high energy intensive processes going on in, in the supply chain. So to go back to, to, to the, this service-based, do you see solar becoming more of a service-based industry? How do you, what's your, what are your thoughts there? Well, I, I certainly think we're going to see a change from the notion that energy needs to be generated centrally. Hmm. I believe that what we have seen as a result of the feed-in tariff and the several million houses in the UK that installed solar is that decentralized energy generation is is something that has a, a strong future i would certainly love to see government legislation that said that every new building had to have solar uh, on the roof uh, i think that would make an even bigger difference but i think that like i say decentralized energy generation is really really important and then what we've seen with having decentralized generation some storage and then other enabling technologies like, for example, blockchain, um, community energy, local energy trading, local energy companies. That, that means that it may not be necessarily solar as a service, but it means that you're, you're kind of implying, do you have to own everything? And, and somebody will have, uh, uh, let's say, an, an asset that they're not using for all of the time. So, for example, um, back in the pre-COVID days when, when people were at work on a sunny day, probably their solar systems were generating more energy than their house was using. Um, and so, however, it could be that one of their neighbours who is working from home uh, or who's retired and is, a, is at home anyway, they may well be consuming energy. And so 
being able to link these sort of the the user and the provider i think is a is how a localized energy economy can can function and whilst having to understand exactly how uh, blockchain works is not necessarily the the barrier to enabling us to be able to create that trading and so i think that that the service side it's it's about the, kind of the opposite of it as a service is do i have to own the asset or can i make use of the of an asset when i need it and i think that that is is going to continue to grow whether it's from energy generation um, or for from vehicles many aspects of our of our lives that's so interesting and it also having a service-based industry it takes the the sort of the the it well it puts the pressure back on manufacturers and, and suppliers to actually recycle their their products in in a more well to actually one first of all do it and then do it in a sustainable and um ethical way i think one of the the things that i've has been um, emphasized um recently um with planet of the humans is this the kind of the negative side of of the renewable energy industry that there's there's a high embodied carbon there the yes solar panels and, and wind and hydro they use a lot of there's a high embodied carbon and and there's also chemicals that we have to use in in the industry but when you have a service-based economy it actually kind of it, it or i believe if please correct me if i'm wrong it, it will it almost instigate some kind of like you say use the, the use it as a catalyst to encourage installers manufacturers to to take back their assets and be like right what can i how can i reuse this again i think you can actually recycle up to about 95 percent of, of a solar panel and you can create a new solar panel out of that and i think with when you combine that with blockchain it adds this level of transparency into the industry that i think is is, is so vital i mean i don't think we've got really well, there will be some rogues in the solar energy industry. I've seen them in Planet of the Humans that cut down Joshua trees and they don't do anything when then when the solar farm comes to the end of life. But I think having that that blockchain element to take to sort of record sort of everything. So anybody who ever wanted to see any step of any process could go back and be like, ah, so and so spoke to so and so that day. And then this email was sent then and oh, that outcome had that. So it adds this level of of trust yeah. as well into the industry. Yeah, I think I mean I would say three things. Firstly, I've watched Planet of the Humans, and I think it's 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 a disappointingly presented mm. narrative. I agree. In that it it massively uh, underplays the the features of solar technology today and the implications of that technology. It focuses a lot on certain certain what are what are called sustainable energy generation. But I would absolutely agree with the narrative of the of that. Uh, documentary that that chopping down trees does not make sense as biomass and biofuel i think mm. there, there there will be offcuts that can be used but i but the, you know, the notion that we we cut down pristine forest to then burn it is it to me is um is a folly. Mm. um so so i i i'm disappointed by i, I really wanted to think that that was going to be another good um, point of information for people about about what was happening in the renewables industry and that it would be a really good basis of, of fact but uh, i came away bitterly disappointed with the with the undertone and the, the narrative um so th that's one thing anyway the second thing is that if you're a manufacturer of of 
let's say domestic products let's just say like washing machines then you know that you've got to buy metal parts you know you've got to buy plastic parts you know you've got to buy all these different um, components and when you look at the sort of the future of your of your business you've got your own innovation to keep ahead of of your competitors you've got your competitors activities which are let's say the dna of why you're in the business in the first place and then having got your kind of your core product design and your core proposition in place you've then got to look at how you manufacture it and one of your core inputs will be energy and of course if you've got renewable energy ideally for example if you've got solar on the roof i recognize that many factories couldn't have a big enough roof to generate enough energy themselves but if you're using renewable energy then of course there's no underlying reason why the cost of that energy should go up in the future because once you've invested in the technology that generates it then actually your fuel is free yeah. so getting your energy costs um, under control as a manufacturer is a core element of future competitiveness and the second is the the supply of raw materials and if you're able to take back the product that you put into the market then in principle and i recognize you can't just use old bits of, of products and sell it as new but in principle you're creating an opportunity to have raw materials that yes we'll need to get processed etc to get into the form you want them but effectively that kind of circular economy approach gives you an opportunity to be able to have some control over the input costs for your materials and if you've got really good um, if you've got good innovation in your product you've got your energy costs and under control uh, and also you've got uh, control over your material inputs then that puts you in a very strong competitive position uh, and then the third thing I would say is that historically the waste industry was one that wasn't very glamorous and wasn't very exciting I think actually we're, we're realizing now that that um, every product has a, has a value and if you can unlock that value whether it's the amount of gold or other precious or high high value materials that are in a mobile phone to um, car catalysts to even to kind of plain plain steel or glass or aluminium it's that there is a real value there and I think that the waste industry is, a, is, is an area where it's going to be very very exciting in, in the future and it, it doesn't sound like it will be exciting but you know right now we have our different collection bins at home for different types of material and and we kind of we get told oh don't don't put this one in there because oh yeah they'll have to throw the whole lot out if you if you contaminate it with that and my view is that's that that's all very well but that's that's not how technology should be able to take us to a solution where yes it's helpful if you separate glass from metals but as we go forwards i really believe that the technology should be capable of, of actually handling those waste streams very efficiently from separating out all sorts of different materials and being able to extract value from them so that actually we have um, value from waste rather than waste being value less oh, i love what you just said there value from waste rather than waste being valueless i think that's that's so key because i think we have we've we've the last well up until recently i think there's been this throwaway culture i think everything's just gone in into the bin and i saw a documentary um might have been 
the year before last and it was it was about how they're actually starting to mine landfill because there's there's so many resources in there from gold to aluminium to it's just it's just mad and i think i i love this i love the idea of doing that and it means then hopefully we won't have to dig up the the deep sea to get cobalt cobalt for batteries um but i think i think yeah i, I just i love this idea well, could you sorry and we've all we've all we've all seen a crushed aluminium can by the side of the road Mm. Now, if that can had a value of 20 pence, do you mm. think it would be left by the side of the road? Because I don't mm. think it would. And so I think it's just, it's, if, if there's a value in waste, then actually we'll suddenly find that it's, it's people are almost incentivized to go and clean things. You know, we, we've seen those tragically sad pictures of, of um, people in various parts of the world who are clambering over, over waste tips to, to pick plastic out, to pick other materials out. And in their own, in, in, that, in that world, those, the value of those plastic bottles, those plastic caps, those aluminium cans or something is, is the difference for them making, having, having um, a life or not being able to feed themselves. And so we've got, as you say, we are used to throw away, but no one actually is very clear where away is. That's such a good point. I think there's... Um... There's a mind. There's a there's a shift again, like with where, how we shift the appliances, shift how we and when we use our appliances, shift where we buy our our food from. There's got to be a shift in in mindset, in 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 yeah, in what we think away is, and this idea that what we throw away is the difference between someone else living and and not is for me such a big wake up call and it's such a such a powerful message and i hope it's um it's one thing that we will get across in this chat today i think it's just wonderful could we talk about batteries and and where and the sort of the the impact of of exploration and 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 manufacture and how we can get over the recycling sure well, I think that fits in really well with the idea that if there's a value in mm. something that has come to the end of its life, then actually it won't be the end of the life. It will actually be the start of its next life. And so, so the reality is that battery materials are valuable. And for um, any waste recycling processing, for it to be economic, it needs to have some volumes. And if we if we have very low volumes of waste because there's very little of any particular type of waste stream, then there won't be the investment in the technology to create automated uh, recovery systems and recycling and repurposing and reuse. And so what I think we're seeing is that these are the kind of the classic first steps of the, the reality of new mines having to be built to to extract the materials that are needed for the batteries. But of course, we're pretty foolish if we then imagine that we're going to, to keep um, forever and ever having to exploit virgin new material in order to be able to make those products. And actually in the battery industry, uh, the, the kind of the old lead acid battery is one of the most recycled uh, products that there are because lead has a, a value. In a lead acid battery, it's very easy to separate the lead from the rest of the battery. Uh, and typically, uh, as I kind of mentioned before about this sort of circular economy side, the, when you take a, a lead acid battery to, to um, for example, a, a refuse uh, tip, they will 
separate those batteries out and those batteries will very quickly go back to the lead smelter who produces the anodes and cathodes which go to make lead acid batteries. So there, there is already a circular uh, supply route there and I'm really very certain that if, if I was a manufacturer of lithium-ion batteries um, and there are about seven or eight different types of lithium-ion battery chemistry but that I would be very keen to have reliable streams of uh, end-of-life batteries because as I said before that's my economic advantage if I don't have to rely upon fresh mined product to to be able to manufacture my product and so I, I I'm a sort of a real optimist that we'll actually find some happy medium between um, virgin raw supply and the ability to recycle and reuse materials that are already in, in circulation. It feels like a, a no-brainer almost there to be able to collect, similar to the service industry, what has been used and put it immediately back into the, the sort of the circular loop so you can reuse it again. It seems it's like a win-win-win-win and I think it, it goes back to what we first started talking about is how we're all powered by the sun and it's this, this cyclical, um, the beauty of nature and that nature doesn't waste anything and I think the more we can emulate that I think the more we will be moving towards a successful prosperous and bright future for, for everybody. I think there's, there's yeah. so much so much there that I think we can I want to use the word exploit, but I want to emphasize using it in a, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's no surprise, I'm, I'm sure, that, that there are quite a few Chinese lithium-ion battery manufacturers who are actively buying back lithium-ion batteries from old mobile phones, old laptop computers, and they are already recycling those battery, the, the, the batteries to, to break out the raw materials to then remanufacture re them into new batteries. So, you know, these... As soon as there's some volume and there's some economic advantage, that will then drive uh, entrepreneurs to to create a business. And, and so I'm, you know, I'm really believe that that there will will be answers to some of these challenges, and that they will be based around very straightforward economics. I think it's I think it's great. There's um one of the concerns um I I hear and. I'm not a battery specialist, so I'd love to ask you about this. Um, there's a there's the sort of the danger element of um, of some batteries at the moment when the cathode, if a battery is to get damaged, and when the cathode, the negative part of the negative electrode, is to touch the anode, the, the positive um, part of the battery, then you have this very very quick. Well, you have a short circuit. The battery gets very very hot, and then it pretty much explodes. So there's this kind of this sort of danger aspect uh, well we've got to be very careful in our cars which obviously people do anyway even if they're a, not a combustion engine car you don't want to yeah you're not going to sort of you're going to be careful in a, a conventional car as as careful as you're going to be in an electric vehicle with solid state batteries they have this ability to be to be damaged because there's 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 sort of a break between well there's there's a barrier between the cathode and the anode do you know anything about how the recyclability of those, because I know they offer a, a huge advantage in the fact of, of, of safety? Well, I think let's just be careful on this um, narrative on safety, because yeah. I think that that's really... Um, uh, so lithium-ion batteries, the, for example, the ones that go into laptop computers, this is one of those don't try this at home kind of... of topics but yes, they, are, they are designed with 
uh, the ability that if you banged a nail into that into that battery first of all they do have separators between the anode and cathode um, and so they um, they have what's called a shutdown separator and so as soon as there's any um, heat buildup in that in that um, cell so the separator will effectively go from being porous to non-porous so that will then prevent positive and negative plates from touching each other second thing is at the top of the cell there's also a pressure release vent and so before if if the if there's a puncturing so the separator is 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 punctured and there is a short circuit in the battery there is a safety pressure release vent in the top of the cells so and then within a battery uh, within a when we call a battery that is a combination of cells that are joined together and in series and in parallel and we have um, monitoring and protection circuits within those so between cells if one cell was to start to get very hot there'll also be a thermal fuse that will protect that so that it'll isolate the battery so you don't get a runaway thermal um, challenge with the with the batteries and then you have an overall battery management system which also controls the the battery now the the reasons that a battery may catch fire are firstly if a, a combination of those different mechanisms are all simultaneously taken out for some reason and the the likely reason that something may fail like that is actually from um, something that didn't go right in the manufacturing process and so th this is a game where buying high quality products from really reputable manufacturers is, is is really very important because the standards and the safety mechanisms and the way in which they uh, control those batteries is is really part of what protects their brand and so their yeah without wanting to kind of sound just too just because it's a big brand it's going to be safe but but they certainly they've got um, a lot of reputation at stake based around the safety mechanisms mechanisms they put into the battery and also within the different types of lithium-ion battery different lithium-ion chemistries whether it's lithium-ion phosphate nickel manganese cobalt lithium-ion uh, lithium phosphate i mentioned but there are there are other different types of variations on those the nickel um, cobalt aluminium batteries for example so there are different types of lithium-ion battery and they all have different types of characteristics inherently lithium-ion phosphate is is a really very very safe technology it doesn't have the same energy density uh, and so that's why you typically find batteries like that which have slightly lower maximum discharge rate characteristics and therefore have uh, then le far less likely if there was if they were to be thrown into a bonfire for example um, the way in which they would um, let's say react is far less reactive than other some of the other lithium-ion chemistries which are designed specifically to be able to deliver very high um, high power so sorry a bit of a kind of a, a, a an aside there in terms of just some of the the topics that people mention when it comes to lithium-ion safety and i really don't have any kind of concerns there when we talk about solid state batteries there are different types of lithium solid state battery and lithium as a metal is a very reactive metal and so if you want to have the highest energy density you'd kind of quite like to have lithium metal as part of the, the the battery and there are some solid state lithium batteries which 
seek to use solid lithium um, as as um, part of the construction and and then to make sure that it can be contained and operated in a safe manner so i think that solid state batteries definitely have um, a, you know a, a strong outlook they will be a, a future technology but i also think that there's a lot of evolution in the existing lithium-ion chemistries which will see them move forward and and so i wouldn't write off any of those and i would say there will be some exciting opportunities for for solid state batteries but i don't think we should just assume that that their market opportunity is based around some apparent perceived safety concerns with with the existing lithium-ion technology and, and just going talking about cars you know frankly driving around with with 50 liters of fuel in the back of your car compared to a battery actually that fuel is certainly not very exciting and as we know from watching any american tv show you only have to have two cars bump into each other and they'll explode i think thank you i thank you so much for addressing these safety issues because there's um yeah they're, they're sort of they're rife out there between sort of the what we were talking about in reasons why people may not want to buy uh, an electric car so i think that's and you touched on this this issue of um and this this point of high quality products i think that goes it sort of transcends over everything that we've spoken about as well where we invest in quality and we save money and the planet in the long run i think there's there's so many things out there where we we think oh this is great um and it's with the solar lights as you know oh it's it, it costs me less money with other alternative um to our solar lights it costs me less money it's bigger oh that means it's better it's not necessarily the case if you invest a little bit more money in something that's going to last you a lot longer not only will you get more value out of that but usually it means that it's going to be it'll be better for the environment because you're not going through so many resources and i think also when you said that there's, there's opportunities for existing battery technologies in the evolution of lithium-ion i think it it solidifies and emphasizes the fact we we have everything that we need now to solve the problems of inequality and climate change that, that exists now so there's there's no reason for for people not to not to go and kind of integrate with with everything that we've been talking about now and 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 yeah get on being the eco warrior that is within us all maybe talk about just briefly this this the opportunities um with different battery technologies because am i right in saying that there's a there's a every different battery chemistry is most optimally used for different applications for example i think at, at the battery conference conference where we met and one of the the speakers said lithium um the duracell batteries the worst thing you can probably do with them is actually to put them in a clock because they're not designed for for long minimal um i'm sure. forgetting forgetting the word discharge yeah could you, could you talk about how how can people know what applications or what appliances to use most optimally for the batteries that we can purchase in store or are we not at that stage yet um if we're talking about lithium ion batteries mm -hmm. then as I mentioned before, because of the, so lithium ion batteries have um, um, a voltage of between 3.2 and 4.2 volts as their kind of operating voltage, depending on the, on the chemistry of that, of that type of lithium cell. Um, and that by itself is, is probably, let's say, not the most useful voltage. We think about a lot of things being 12 volts, for example, or we think about semiconductors working at maybe one and a half volts or five volts or so. They're all different voltages. And so typically we need to combine, as I mentioned, 
cells together in series and parallel to create the, um, the voltage and the capacity that we're, we're looking for. And so when you buy a laptop computer battery, it is already designed with the right lithium chemistry for that application. So when it comes to buying single cells of lithium ion, then typically they they won't be designed if, if you can buy the equivalent of an you know an AA cell mm. for example they they won't be designed for super high rate discharge uh, and that'll probably be written on the outside of the cell but for most people I think the they will just know that it's battery powered I don't think that it's critical to know whether it's lithium iron phosphate lithium titanate NMC NCA um, lithium thionyl chloride or whatever else they don't they don't need to know that it's it's okay it's it's not it, once once it's in the application it's not critical but what i'm saying is that for a for a lithium ion cordless power tool that is clearly going to be aimed at high rates of discharge whereas in a laptop computer then we're talking about 8 10 12 hours and so that's a low rate discharge so if you were a hobbyist and you and you bought some some secondhand computer batteries, you you probably would be ill-advised to try to to create a power tool type product from mm. that because because probably one of the circuit protection elements will 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 blow uh, and you may not be able to replace that very readily. That's good advice. And again, don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> that's that's awesome. So I think maybe in the next. Well, as as time evolves, we'll probably see that all the different battery chemistries coming along are going to they're going to be suited to individual applications. So that's really yeah, a good and, that, and that's been the case for you know, for lead acid batteries. You have a different type of requirement for the battery that starts your car to the one that's in an alarm system, for mm. example. So um, it, it's been the same for a long time, and there'll be a continual evolution of the anode, the cathode, the um, separators, the electrolyte, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That, that will continue to to evolve. It's a very interesting, interesting space. I'm fascinated by it myself. Last question, if I may. Yeah. What gives you hope? What positive news have you found out recently in the in the amidst of the myriad of crises that we're that we're facing at the moment in in terms of climate, in terms of pandemics, in terms of racial inequality? What gives you hope for the future and how and yeah how do you see the next kind of the few years panning out hmm. well i'm i'm an optimist and i believe that the rate at which people have adopted solar the rate at which people are adopting electric vehicles the rate at which people are switching to renewable energy I think those are really positive signs that actually provided people understand that you know the, the barrier to to making a, a positive difference the, the barrier to change is is not a, a big one we've talked about faith in nature we've talked about biod we've talked about evz we've talked about octopus they're all out there they're not hidden you don't have to be a specialist or an expert to find them and hopefully through you know um uh, casts like this one it's it's helping to sort of spread the word and the power of social media is one that that shows that actually we can 
help people to understand what options there are out there much more, more readily. Whereas when I talked about when I was first working in the solar industry, where actually the how I could could get to a stage where people would see 10 solar panels on their way to work. I didn't have terribly uh, a great power myself to influence that. It, it was government that helped to influence that. Whereas we do have the ability to spread the word about some of these um, products and solutions in a way now which can really be global extremely quickly. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic that we can, we can make a positive difference by the actions that let's say make a positive step forward and I think also this power of global communication um, I, was, I was looking at uh, a kind of a quotation which was um, it's, it was said what if they gave a war and nobody came and and I, and I, mm. and I thought well what if they built a nuclear power station or they offered gas from a frack fracking mm. and people didn't want it they said no thanks I've got uh, renewable energy already. So, you know, and if, if you were a financier and you thought that people wouldn't buy the energy from a nuclear power station because it takes you 10 to 15, maybe 20 years to buy it. If we, if we said now, I'm not gonna ever buy nuclear power and I don't need to because I've got all these other options. Do you think people would finance the building of a nuclear power station? Do you think they would finance the, the companies that are fracking because I don't think they would and so what gives me hope is that if there are simple straightforward messages that it's fairly it's easy for people to to understand the difference you know the the, the argument it's not too nuanced it's, it's fairly straightforward if nobody wants nuclear power they won't build a nuclear power station simple so spreading those kind of simple messages through social media I think is extremely powerful and therefore I'm really optimistic that all of the great technological solutions that are being worked on now, the ones that you can buy today right now, the steps and actions you can take right now, that by spreading the word more people will do those and we will actually start to make a real difference to, to climate change. But let's not expect that we can click our fingers and overnight uh, we can say job done and um, back to the old ways of living because it won't be quite as simple as that. I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. Just love how you put it, and it's yeah, it's we can't expect for it to 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 happen overnight. It's good. It's got to be a gradual change of of like we've been talking about shifting our demand and the the power of of people working together and and communicating the fact that we don't want nuclear, we don't want fracking, we don't want coal is is so massive, and it's almost I feel like there's four petitions we could start from this that we should go out and try and get like couple of million signatures hopefully that would just be that would just yeah work towards spreading these messages and I've found out about a very interesting study recently that's given me so much hope and so much optimism it's just so exciting it's that studies have been has shown that um, you can take a minority idea and make it a majority idea with only 10 to 11 percent of a population so it only, it's just going to take a few of us to get this wheel, this wheel going to be like, we don't want this. This is this isn't how we want our future. This isn't what we want in our present. We demand better. We have higher standards. And I think that is that's so empowering and enabling. And, and I, I think personally, just super exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we've all got a part to play. And mm. like I say, it doesn't it doesn't just have to be somebody else that that does it. And the biggest 
the biggest point that I, I think is, is super important is let's not look around and expect somebody else to do it. There's, a, there's, there's enough reasons why we can do it ourselves. We can start to make a difference ourselves. And if we all start to make a difference, then together we'll start to make a bigger difference. We'll have a bigger voice and that will enable us to make an even bigger dif difference in the future because, because decision makers, lawmakers, policy makers, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they're not stupid. They have their eyes and ears open and they will follow where, where people are leading them. I could not agree more. Just, I think we should end on that note because I couldn't think it's so positive and just, just so brilliant. And I just can't thank you enough, Jerry. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Love talking to you as always. It's inspired me, opened my mind. And it's just, yeah, the messages that you have for people out there, I think are, are just fantastic. So it's just thanks to you and all your work moving us towards a renewable and sustainable future it's just it's just so exciting and there's no one to hug i wish there was someone around to hug this is just it's just great i love i love everything that you say and just just can't wait to to see what's going to happen with GridServe and all your your ventures in the future i've no doubt that you're gonna yeah continue to keep contributing to the amazing battery and storage energy industry and yeah, continuing to do huge, incredible, amazing things for humanity as a whole. So just thank you for everything and thank you for your time and just, yeah, it's just wonderful. So right. thank, well, you thank you so much. much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity and you know, anybody who's um, who, who's following what we've been talking about, if they want to, to feedback through yourself, then I'll do my best to engage with as many, as many people as possible and, uh, you know, whether positive or negative, um, you know, we're all in this to be enlightened. Absolutely. And to learn. It's a journey we go on together. Absolutely. Oh, that's amazing. Thanks so much again, Jerry. That's my pleasure.